Couldn't find the little plug to plug this into. Proved to be more problematic than I originally anticipated. Okay. Good to see everybody. I, uh, in between services, lost this, this little microphone thing, and it flung around in my car. Not that I was driving irresponsibly on roundabouts or anything like that. Um, <laughs> but I'm going, I straight lost the receiver in between services. And this is, is this a new one too? That I, yeah, no, it would have been bad. Drew would have been upset. Joe would have been upset. I said, tough. It happens. So as uh, we've mentioned, we are going to be in the book of Matthew for quite some time. It's called the Gospel According to Matthew, which means it's the good news according to Matthew. And Matthew is a tax collector who has his life radically transformed by Jesus. And he writes a book about his life, death, and resurrection. We thought it would be good to spend some time saturating ourselves in this book, with all that we've been through and all that's going on in the world, to spend some time in the life, death, teachings, and resurrection of Jesus. In order to understand Matthew, however, though, you have to understand the moment that he finds himself in. Because one of the fascinating things is that Matthew writes the first page of the New Testament. And if you were to just go back one page, you would be in the last book of the Old Testament, the last chapter of Malachi. And between the last page of Malachi and the first page of Matthew, the New Testament, there exists 400 years of history. 400 years. Just like one simple turn of the page, boom, 400 years. And this 400 years is incredibly important for a number of reasons we'll get, we'll get into later, but suffice to say for now, it's seen as this time of silence because there's no prophet speaking or writing sacred scripture at this time. It's like this 400 years of silence. But in order to understand Matthew and this period that's called the intertestamental period, you have to understand that Matthew is writing his story as the climax to a long story that's been going on for a very long time. Matthew isn't happening in a vacuum. He sees his story as the climax to a long story that's been taking place in Scripture all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. And if you're familiar with that story, you know that God creates human beings and he makes them in his image. And that means they have intrinsic and innate value. But in addition to that, they have a job, a vocation, a mission. They are to do the will of God on earth and they are to reflect the glory and goodness of God back down into the created order. And what happens next, uh, there's been a million pages written on it and a million pages more could be written on it, but a mysterious shadowy figure enters into our story called the Nahash in Hebrew. We know it as the serpent. And the serpent tempts Adam and Eve and ultimately they rebel against the good will of God. And God shows up and pronounces a judgment. He places a curse on the ground and the serpent. One thing we need to correct at this point is oftentimes people say this is where God curses humanity. Go back and read it. God never curses humanity in that. He curses the ground and the Nahash, the serpent. And in that judgment, God says this. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. 
There's enmity. In other words, there's going to be tension, war, or strife between this woman's offspring and the Nahash's offspring. A, a, a strife, a war, a tension between the descendants of Eve and this serpent figure. And it says he's going, the serpent is going to be struck in the head and the serpent will strike at the hill. Now at this point, we encounter a problem. Oftentimes, we as modern Christians read the Bible primarily through a devotional lens. And what I mean by a devotional lens is this. We, we read it in small chunks looking for daily inspiration or encouragement. Or maybe inspiration and encouragement that's relevant to whatever we might be going through in the moment. But we have our eyes looking for inspiration to tackle our lives. And there's nothing wrong in and of itself with that. But because of that, we can often miss the narrative plot and structure that the Bible is building. So we're looking for encouragement and we're missing the plot. Because at this point, the Bible does something remarkable. It gives you the introduction to the story. If you were watching a movie and the movie begins with an ancient old prophecy about one descendant, a child of Eve, who will one, come, one day come and strike back at evil, what are you doing for the rest of the movie? You're looking for that child to come. You're looking for that fulfillment, the one to come back and strike at evil. And so you're reading this with the narrative lens. Your eyes are fixated on this. Now, what happens after Adam and Eve rebel? If you know the story, what's the very next thing? Eve has a child. His name is Cain. And you should immediately be thinking, maybe this figure is the one who will defeat evil, strike back at the serpent. But then immediately after the introduction of Cain, you get the introduction of another son, a son named, a son named Chevel. We know him as Abel. And the Hebrew here is important because it's a dark, sad foreshadow into the future of this child, Chevel. Chevel is something that's here for a moment and gone the next, that which is here today and gone tomorrow. So your breath on a cold day is Chevel. You remember as a little child, or maybe some of you still do this, but on a cold day, you breathe out, and you go, oh, and you try to grab it. Remember that as a kid, or last week? You're still trying, you know? Um, your breath is something that appears there, but it's always fading and fleeting, and before you can grab it, it's gone. A sunset is chevel. You're watching a beautiful sunset. It's magnificent. It's great. It's everything you want. And you want that moment to last. But as you're sort of basking in the beauty of the sunset, it's sinking and sinking and gone. Hevel is a sunset. That which is here today and gone tomorrow. So what happens to this Hevel? He's murdered by his brother. See, the serpent's venom runs through the descendants of Adam and Eve as well. And so you don't get the striking of the serpent. You get sin infecting and corrupting the line of Adam and Eve. What Adam releases into the world now attacks his children. So if you're reading the narrative and you're looking for the plot points, after Cain and Abel, you're going, well, who's it going to be? It wasn't them. So I should keep looking. And the bad news is you keep reading Genesis. It's just mostly bad stuff. And at one point in the story, it's like everyone does wicked all of the time. 
There's no serpent slayer. There's no one striking at evil until you get to a guy named Abraham. And Abraham is presented as the blessing man. The blessing man. Blessings surround this guy. Surrounds this guy. God makes promises to Abraham based upon blessing. It says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make you a great name so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, in the narrative structure of Genesis, blessing isn't just like good things happen to you. Like, oh, I was blessed. I, 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 got, a, I got a good Christmas present. Blessing and bless is the antithesis. It's the opposite of curse. Remember, the story goes horribly wrong at the beginning and a curse occurs. And now all of a sudden there's a blessing man. And he should be the one that strikes back at evil. He's the blessing guy. But if you're familiar with the story, um, Abraham does not do that. And his son, who you're also in the story meant to, to, to think could be it, because it's like, there's one only precious son. It's the son of the covenant. You think he's going to be it. I mean, he's a great guy, great name. Everything's going for him. But Isaac is not the one to do that either. And so you keep following the story until you go all the way down and you see kind of more corruption and more sin. You reach a guy named David. And David, man, this guy looks like the one to be the descendant from the line of Eve that will strike back at evil. He's faithful, he's humble, he's righteous. He looks into evil and he puts his foot down and says, not here. He takes on tyrants and giants and tells them the battle belongs to the Lord. It's like, this guy's it, man. And then God makes a promise to, to David. He says, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Think about that for a moment. David's going to defeat all of his enemies. All of them. Does that mean and does that include the shadowy figure of evil from the first pages of Scripture? Because we've been waiting now for thousands of years for one to come. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. David is going to have a, a kingdom and a son, and this kingdom and this throne will last forever. Now at that point you start thinking, this doesn't sound like just an earthly type of kingdom. Earthly kingdoms rise and fall. But this David guy who's got it all going, he's going to rest from all of his enemies and he's going to be given an everlasting throne. This guy, this dude's our guy, man. But if you're familiar with the story, David sins and sins horrifically. He commits adultery and then murder. And then his son, who starts off good, Solomon, goes corrupt as well. And you're like, this whole line is broken. These descendants are always corrupt. Within a generation of the time of Solomon, the kingdom breaks apart. It fractures. It splinters. Israel and Judah are at odds. 
And then you get king after king after king in the Old Testament, and some of them are better than others, but when you step back and look at the big picture, the whole lot of them aren't too great. And then the corruption increases and increases to a point where in 586 BC, the empire of Babylon comes in and destroys the temple in Jerusalem, destroys the, the, the armies of Judah, and they take many of the remaining survivors into captivity, into slavery, and something called the exile. This is how the prophet Jeremiah depicts the last days of the last king of Judah. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah. That's the king at the time. Before his eyes and also slaughtered all the officials of Judah at Riblah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains. And the king of Babylon took him to Babylon and put him in prison till the day of his death. That's brutal, right? Brutal. Zedekiah has his sons killed before him. And then he's blinded. Why? So the last thing you saw was the death of your kids. Then he's left to rot in prison till he dies. At that point, it's an all-time low, right? Because it appears as if not only the line was corrupted, but David's line is done. The kingly line is finished. It appears as if all the sons have been killed, and Zedekiah rots away in prison until his death. Horrific, tragic ending. And then you go into what I mentioned earlier called the intertestamental period. The 400 years between the last page of the Old Testament and the first page of the New Testament. And in this, there's more horror and bloodshed and violence and war. And the people of Israel go from being oppressed from one empire to the next. From the Babylonians to the Persians to the Greeks to the Romans. And there's many significant events that happen in this intertestamental period, but probably the most significant one occurs when a Greek leader by the name of Antiochus Epiphanes is ruling over Israel. And for tons of social, cultural, political reasons, he essentially makes it illegal to be Jewish in any religious sense of the word. So he outlaws synagogues. He burns them. He outlaws having Torah scrolls, and if he finds them, he burns them. If you're caught practicing your faith, you are tortured and killed. Mothers who are caught circumcising their male children are killed. He mints coins in Israel that has his name in, in Greek, Antiochus Epiphanes. It's, it's this idea he's the manifest God. It's his way of saying, make no mistake about it, there is no God of Israel in this land. The God of Israel is nowhere to be found. I am the only God in this land. Look around. It's obvious. At the height of his wickedness, he goes into a sort of newly rebuilt temple and goes into the Holy of Holies, the sacred space, and sacrifices and sheds pig blood on the altar of the Holy of Holies to Zeus. All-time low. It couldn't get any worse. Like whatever line there was, whatever hope there is, is pretty much gone. A revolt occurs called the Maccabean Revolt. And some people actually fight back and throw out Antiochus. And Israel has some freedom and liberty for a short period, but it's, it's very short. And sooner, soon enough, the Romans come in and take control of Israel. And that's where you find yourself 
when Matthew begins to write his story. That's where we find ourselves. Hope seems all but lost. The prophecies that God gave people in the Old Testament, they seem broken. It's been thousands of years and no serpent slayer has come from that line. No one has come from the throne of David. We've seen war, violence, and bloodshed. It's been 400 years since a prophet has spoken sacred scripture. There is nothing but silence for 400 years. It's been 500 years since a rightful king has sat on the throne in Israel. 400 years of silence, 500 years since a rightful king has sat on the throne. What is Matthew going to say at this point to reignite hope in his people? What can Matthew possibly say that's going to spark and rekindle that lost hope? What epic, masterful introduction will Matthew give to Jesus? You ready? This is it. Thank you. This is it. This is the epic introduction. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Adinadab, and Adinadab the father of Nishan, and Nishan the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And Solomon was the father of Rehoboam. And Rehoboam the father of Abijah. And Abijah the father of Asaph. And Asaph the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat the father of Joram. And Joram the father of Uzziah. And Uzziah the father of Jotham. And Jotham the father of Ahaz. And Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah the father of Manasseh. Pay attention, it's good. Manasseh the father of Amos. And Amos the father of Josiah. And Josiah the father of Jeconiah. And his brothers at the time of the deportation of Babylon. It's fantastic. It's great, man. It's great. It's not done. After the deportation of Babylon, Jeconiah the father of Shittiel, and Shittiel the father of Zerubbabel, and Zerubbabel the father of Bayud, and Abayud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Azor, and Azor the father of Zadok, and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliah the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar the father of Methan, and Methan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called the Christ. Mine. That's good. I mean, this, were you, I mean, could you get better than that? 400 years of silence, 500 years without a king. Hope is reborn. Right? Now, there are some things that are hidden to us um, as modern readers. This genealogy is broken up into three sections. And I have each section on a single slide. So this is section one, the next slide is section two, and the next slide is section three. And I want us to look sort of at the structure of each section of the genealogy. So three sections, each section has a slide. This is the first section. The first section traces the genealogy from Abraham to David the king. Abraham to David. 
And if we were to go through and look at all the names listed, you would see how many generations there are. So Abraham is the father of Isaac. Isaac is the father of Jacob. Jacob is the father of Judah and his brothers. And Judah is the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. And Perez is the father of Hezron. And Hezron is the father of Ram. And Ram is the father of Adinadab. And Adinadab is the father of Nishan. Nishan is the father of Salmon. Someone got it. You could say Salmon, but if you want to sound like, like gangster about it, man, Salmon. Um, Salmon is the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz is the father of Obed, and Obed is the father of Jesse. And if you were to count up all of those generations, you would get 14 generations. So in section one of the genealogy, there's 14 generations listed. Now, if you go to section two, it begins by saying David, where we left off, was the father of Solomon. And it traces Solomon all the way down to the deportation of Babylon with Jeconiah and his brothers. And if you were to count every name that's listed in this, every generation that's listed in section two, you would see again that there is 14 generations. Section one, 14 generations. Section two, 14 generations. Now, you just take my word at it. You could probably guess the pattern, but section three, the third part of the genealogy, goes from the deportation in Babylon all the way to Jesus, who is called the Christ. And there are 14 generations in that as well. So essentially, you have a timeline developed that begins with Abraham, we'll call him Abe, and it goes to David. And between Abraham and David, there's 14 generations. And then from David to the deportation in Babylon, which we call the exile, you have 14 generations. And then from the exile all the way to the time of Christ, you have another 14 generations. 14, 14, 14. It's Matthew is constructing his genealogy with some type of intent. It's broken down into three sections, each with 14 generations. Now, there is a, a literary device and tool that people in Jewish literature used at this time. And it's called gematria. And essentially what gematria does is it assigns a numeric value to the alphabet. So the alphabet in Hebrew or Greek would become alphanumeric. Now, it may be kind of hard to, to follow, but if I illustrate it in English, it'll make sense. So let's take our alphabet, A, B, C, D. What we would do is we assign a number value to each letter. So A would be 1, B would be 2, C would be 3, D would be... Good, making sure we're tracking. Okay. I know, man, math was difficult back in the day. So each letter has this numeric value. Now, as the alphabet goes further along, you add a number to it. So you could take a word like dad and you can assign the number value to each one of those letters. So D, fourth letter in the alphabet, would be a four. A would be a one, and D would be another four. Now, what Gematria would do at the time of the, in kind of the first century world is you'd add up those numbers. You'd calculate them. You'd add them up. Four plus one plus four equals nine. So the symbolic number representing the word dad would be nine. Dad's number value equals nine. And that's how 
this Gematria stuff work. Now, quick note. Once you get a little tiny introduction to this stuff, everyone's tempted to go weird with it right away. You start looking at your Bible and like you're looking for all these secret codes and numbers and it's like so-and-so died at the age of 77. Oh, let me try to calculate what word. Oh my gosh. It means so-and-so. Bubba adds up to 77. His real secret name was Bubba. And you start going off on all these weird trails and you're trying to like decode the Bible. That's not how this works. It's like anything. You get a little knowledge of something and there's a desire to be like an overnight expert in it and you start seeing it everywhere. So for example, um, we'll get to that in a little bit. Um, there, when the biblical authors want you to see this and they want you to do this, they let you know. They make it explicitly clear. You don't have to try and decode some magical kind of puzzle. They'll make it known to you. Like a good teacher, good teachers let you know what's going to be on the test by emphasizing it and kind of highlighting it again and again like, Make sure you memorize your times tables. And then 20 minutes later, you know, it's very important that you memorize those times tables. Hey, it's probably going to be on the test, them times tables. And then really good teachers. Hey, look at me. Times tables. Times tables. And everyone get up. We're going to do the times tables dance type of thing. They let you know. So one of the most famous examples in scriptures where they do this, and something that will be familiar to most of you, is from the book of Revelation. This calls for wisdom. Let the one who has understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of man, and his number is 666. Now, you are not supposed to, the biblical authors aren't saying, look for those three numbers, 666, and like, be looking, and then when you see it on a wall, that's the beast. What does it say? It says, calculate they're trying to get you to, they're trying to tell you this is more than just three consecutive numbers appearing right after each other. But like everything, people get like a, a small familiarity with something and they want to see it everywhere. This, this happened recently um, with an energy drink, by the way. Uh, this is the sixth letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It's wa in modern Hebrew, va. So wa has the numeric value. It's the sixth letter of the alphabet has a numeric value of six. So monster energy drinks appear to have on the, the front, wah, wah, wah. That's not an M you're seeing for mama monster. That's wah, 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 that's 666. And then some of you are like, oh, whatever. What's their slogan? Unleash the beast. <laughs> their slogan's unleash the beast. Don't be drinking that stuff at this church. What of that stuff here. Come on, man. So monster energy drink is not the beast. It's not the Antichrist. Now, what's weird, companies do this stuff all the time. I have no idea. I don't know the history of how they came up with that logo and that saying. But oftentimes, companies, and especially Hollywood loves to do this, they'll dabble in kind of weird, evil stuff and think it's cool. Like, oh, this is cool. Unleash the beast. I have no idea the story. I'm not making an accusation. Could be pure coincidence. But you'll see stuff in the entertainment industry, in Hollywood, where people are dabbling with kind of weird stuff from the Bible. Uh, so I have no idea what's going on here, but Monster Energy Drink's not the Antichrist. One of the most popular names at the time of Jesus was David. And people would have known his symbolic number, his number based on Gematria. David is the 
most popular king. People loved him. People were waiting for a descendant of David to come. And so they would have known his number. In ancient Hebrew, you wouldn't have written the vowels. So David would appear something like Dawid, and it would be D-W-D. In Hebrew, those would be represented by the letters Dalit, Law, Dalit. Dalit is the fourth letter of the alphabet. Wa, which we've already covered, is what? The sixth. And then another Dalit is four. Four plus six plus four is 14. So David's symbolic number is 14. Why is that important? Matthew has constructed his genealogy in such a way that it's broken up into three sections, and each time you get 14 generations. The ancient Jewish reader would look at that and see 14, 14, 14, David, David, David. Now, why is that important? Because it's been 400 years since sacred scripture has been spoken, 500 years since a rightful king has sat on the throne. And for the most part, it looks like that corrupted line is completely broken. No rightful king could ever come from that line. It's more than corrupted. It's destroyed. Didn't you read about what happened in the prophet Jeremiah? The king died and it appears that hope is lost. And what Matthew is saying at the beginning of his story is there is yet a rightful descendant from the line of Judah, from the line of David, from the line of Abraham. He is the rightful heir to the throne of David. God has been faithful and has preserved this line so that this child can be the one to strike back at the serpent of old, to strike back at evil. The line is not broken. God has been faithful. And there is one entering into the world as a baby who is the rightful heir to the king's throne. And he will have a kingdom that is everlasting. Now, how do we know this? How do I know this 14, 14, 14 things everywhere? Because remember, I said the teacher makes it clear. You ready for Matthew to go, look at me? (laughs) Right after he does the genealogy. So in case you missed it, all the generations of Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation, 14 generations. And from the deportation of Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. David, 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 the line is not broken. A rightful king is about to be born. And he gives you a clue at the beginning of the genealogy. Look at this. At the very beginning, verse 1, he says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. This word genealogy in Greek is genesis. Let me say it again and see if it sounds familiar. Genesis. Genesis. So in he- the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. And the first word that you encounter in the Old Testament Hebrew is bereshit. Beginning. That's where we get in the beginning. The Old Testament begins with beginning. The New Testament, the first page, begins with genesis. Beginning. The first book of the Old Testament begins with the making of the cosmos. The first book of the New Testament begins with the cosmos maker. The first one is a beginning and a creation account, and then you're introduced to the maker, the cosmos maker, who was there in the beginning. Then Matthew tells us that he's the Christ. And we often joke around about this, but Christ is not the last name of Mary and Joseph. It's not like there's Mary and Joseph Christ and they move into the neighborhood and we like their little boy, Jesus Christ. 
Christ is his title. It's from the Hebrew word Mashiach. This is the one in whom all the promises of old are coming to fulfillment. All the promises of God are about to find their yes and amen in this child. And then he makes it clear, this one is the son of David and the son of Abraham. This is the one we've been waiting for. This is the offspring, the descendant from Eve who will strike back at the serpent of old. 400 years of silence, 500 years without a rightful king on the throne. And now we are introduced to a genealogy that tells us exactly what's about to occur. This is the perfect way for Matthew to set up his story. And right after the genealogy, he says this. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. And then he begins to tell the story of the life, teachings, death, and resurrection of this Jesus. And we will spend roughly the next year and a half with some breaks looking at the story of the life, teachings, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Now, uh, I want to briefly look at how this kind of ancient genealogy should and can inform us today. What this genealogy will do for us is it'll present to us a faithful understanding of time. And what I mean by that is it teaches us to be forward-looking, holding to the past so that we may be fortified in the present. Let me say what I mean by that. Forward-looking. People in the Old Testament died before they ever saw their hope fulfilled. They prayed and prayed and waited for Messiah to come. And the majority of them died before they saw that. But they had a hope that was so forward-looking, it went beyond their lives. Now, I'm telling you, the majority of prayers that Christians pray today are not prayers that go beyond their life. We are a culture saturated individualism and immediacy. So the majority of our prayers are about us and how we need something soon, right away. What the genealogy teaches us, like faithful Christians have had such a forward-looking perspective that they, they said, even if I die, Lord, bless my great, great, great grandchildren that they may be able to see the king coming into the world. You know, we're saturated in individualism and immediacy. Think about how culture shapes us, technology shapes us. We're a microwave generation. You know what I mean by that? We have frozen food. It's frozen solid as a rock. And in two and a half minutes, you are dipping into that hot pocket and burning your tongue off. You know what I mean? And two and a half minutes, that cheese is blistering the top of your mouth. It went from solid as a rock to burning the roof of your mouth. Boom, two and a half minutes, done. Immediacy. I am the last generation of kids who will, and some of you won't understand this, some of you will. Um, when we watched movies as kids, immediately after, if you were polite, you would be kind. And you'd take out that VHS and you'd, 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 you'd rewind the whole thing all the way back to the beginning so the next person didn't have to rewind. Because it's very rude to have someone wait for five minutes and that thing's going on. 
So we sat, you know, movie's done, rewind. You know how hard that was as a little kid? This thing takes forever. And some of you try to stop it, to like right before the preview, so you could start it right at the right time. You know what I mean? You remember this stuff? Look, that will never happen again. You just, whatever movie you want, you talk to your phone, and it puts it on your screen. You don't rewind, you don't fast forward. Whatever song you want, you talk to your phone. Yo, play that song I like. You don't even name it, it's already memorized the songs you like. So you're, you're saturated in immediacy. You don't have a forward-looking perspective, and culture is shaping us in that way. Christians need to learn to pray prayers that are bigger than themselves, bigger than their own lives. You may need to pray, Lord God, even if I don't see it in my lifetime, please let my grandbabies know you. Please let my grandbabies, let every last one of them, even if I don't see it, Lord, let every one of my grandbabies know you. That's beyond you. It's beyond your life. It's bigger than you. And you see this sometimes you can pray for a loved one. And let's say it was your, your grandma who, who actually helped you learn to pray and she always told you she was praying for you. I'm praying for you, baby. I'm praying for you. And one day she gets ill and she's sick in the hospital and now you're praying for her and you're saying, Lord, please, please help my grandma. Heal my grandmother. Heal her. And you could see that her health is getting worse and eventually she passes. See, in one sense, in the short-term perspective, you can say, God, I thought you were there. I thought you cared. You promised to never leave us or forsake us. And it's like, done deal. It appears that God wasn't faithful. See, when you have a, a hope and a faith that looks past your own life, you know that, wait a second. Sometimes God brings healing to people in the present. Most of the time, that does not occur. Sometimes God blesses us and people are miraculously healed. And that happens and can happen. But the Christian has a different type of hope. They say, Lord God, thank you that, you know, even if you bless me with five more years with grandma, she would still taste death at one point. She would still be in the hospital again. But my hope is not that she would be healed from a hospital bed. My ultimate hope is that one day all those in Christ will be raised up. And they will be raised up in a glorified, resurrected body, which will not taste death. And I will know them for eternity. That's a different type of hope. It's forward looking. It looks to the end. Now, how do we do that as Christians? Well, to have that type of hope, you have to be holding to the past. You have to hold fast to the past promises and faithfulness of God. If I'm going to look that far into the future, I need to look that far back into the past and say, I know Jesus is faithful because at the right time in the right place through the messy genealogy that Matthew begins with, God was working the whole time so that at the right time, Christ would come into the world so that God can be faithful to every last promise in the person of his son. And that this son, this Messiah, wouldn't just live on earth, but he would die on a cross in my place. And so I cling to God's past faithfulness of the cross. 
so that I can have the courage and audacity and hope to be forward-looking. And when you do that, you can then be fortified in the present. Because the present, it's not all sunshines, right? It's, it's a rough place. The world is terribly broken. Christians don't pretend as if everything is perfect. We look at evil. We call it what it is. And we, like our Savior, see the brokenness of the world, and we don't run from it. We go into it with the love of God. Because Jesus could have been, like, he could have been at section one of that genealogy and been like, you know, I'm stopping at Boaz. My family's whack. I'm giving up on this. We're going to do another plan. I know I said some promise. No, but that's not what he did. He goes into the evil and the mess of his own people, and he becomes their flesh, their blood, and he redeems our humanity, goes into that, doesn't pretend as if the world's easy. And so the Christian has to be fortified in the present by looking to Jesus, his second coming, where he will right every wrong. And we cling to the past, the cross, and his resurrection. So we, in the present, can heed our master's words. In this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. And why is this so even more incredibly important for the moment we find ourselves in? This is, this is a screen capture last week from Drew Dowler's phone. After service, I think it was last week, Drew Dowler picked up his phone and he showed his news app. You can't read everything. I'll explain in a second. But he's like, dude, look at, my, look at what's the, what my news app is. Okay. War in Afghanistan. Fires on the West Coast. Floods on the East Coast. And worldwide pestilence. Think about that. Like, that's the setup to a horrible movie. That is symbolic, apocalyptic, like, imagery. War, fire, and floods, disease, and pestilence. And it's bombarding you nonstop. So how can a Christian navigate that world? A Christian says, my Jesus is coming back. And I know that because he came 2,000 years ago and he demonstrated at the fullness of time his love and faithfulness to his people. And with that future and that past, I stand fortified and confident in the present. And so you and your, your like just daily lives, you, you have to learn to, to do this. Lord, come soon. Come, Lord Jesus. This is craziness. And Lord, I'll be faithful. Help me to be faithful. Help me to be patient and wait for your coming. Even if I never see you, your, your return, help me to be faithful in the moment that I live in. Let me have courage and take heart because I know that you have overcome the world. This is how Matthew begins his story. The line of David is not broken. There is a rightful heir to the kingdom and he comes to this world as a baby, a vulnerable child where dictators and tyrants rule the day. And in the vulnerable child rests all the promises of God. 
This is the beginning of Matthew's story. And I hope you track with us as we go through his entire story. Let's stand as we take communion. The good news is that God was indeed working through that genealogy with all the sin and brokenness and war and violence and dysfunction and all the mess of it, which is very good news for you today because it says this, no matter what may be in your past, no matter what's been done to you, no matter what you've done to others, no matter what whack stuff is in your family, no matter how much dysfunction is in your family, whatever mess there might be, whatever failure there might be, if God can work through thousands of years of that genealogy, then God can bring about good in your life. And so Jesus says, the way you cling to that, as you remember, we cling to the cross. Jesus says, you take this in remembrance of him. He says, this is my body broken for you. And Lord, as we take this, we remember. The Apostle Paul would say this. When we take this cup, it's, it's a way of promising to declare the death and resurrection of Jesus until he returns, Lord. And so we want to go into the future declaring your death and resurrection, and we want to declare that that past event occurred in time and space on our behalf. Help us to be faithful, Lord. Father, as we close, may we honor your son as we close with just, just a song. May the next few minutes be a time where we focus on the person and work of your son, Jesus, for what he did on our behalf. And we thank you that you never gave up on your promises, that at the fullness of time, you sent your son to us. Help us to be faithful and trust in you, Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.